Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Tin. Uh, I'm doing the second Bible reading this morning. Uh, is Psalm number three, which is a psalm which we daily lead uh, in the midst of this uh, pandemic. So, Psalm number three. Lord, how many are my foes? How many may rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you, Lord, are the shield around me. My glory, the one who lift my head high, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assails me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it would be good if you could keep your Bible open with you as we uh, work through this psalm. Uh, but as we begin, I'm going to pray, so please pray with me. Gracious God, we know that uh, you are a gracious and kind, a loving Father to us, your people. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, and we pray that as we consider it now, you would be working in us, strengthening and encouraging us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what is it that you're most afraid of? What is it that you fear the most? According to one study, around 75% of people are scared of spiders to some degree. I must confess, I do fall into that 75%. I hate spiders, and so therefore I love killing them. Nothing in the world gives me as much pleasure as crushing one, knowing that their horrid little lives are over. But perhaps you're like me, you're one of the 75% of people that fear spiders. Or perhaps you, you fear something less common. I looked up some of the unusual phobias that people have, and uh, these are some of the things that people are afraid of. Some people have arachibuterophobia. Now, I assume you don't know what that means. What it means is a fear of getting peanut butter stuck to the top of your mouth. Now, to me, that sounds like something we should desire not to be scared of, but nevertheless, that's what some people are scared of, getting peanut butter stuck to the top of their mouths. Uh, other people have xanthophobia, which is a fear of the colour yellow and anything that is the colour yellow, including bananas and crayons and anything yellow. Or what about this one? Uh, let me just turn that on. What about... Uh, can we get the, the PowerPoint up? Thank you. What about this one? Uh, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that, but do you know what that's the fear of? Long words, oh, it's so good, isn't it? Like, that's the longest word in the dictionary, and they've used the longest word in the dictionary to describe people who have a fear of long words. Oh, it's so, so amusing. But, um, but that's what some people are scared of, long words. I'm sure that there's other things you might be scared of, kind of um, fairly light, fairly quirky things. But what about the deeper things? What are the deeper things that you fear? I mean, there's all sorts that we could answer, aren't there? For example, I'm sure one of the things that many of us are genuinely scared of is cancer. And it's understandable why. In 2020, here in Australia, more than 50,000 people 
died of cancer. It's a terrible thing. And it strikes young and old alike. And so maybe that's what we're scared of. Or what about losing a loved one? I'm sure that would be very high on the list for many of us, to never be able to see them again, to never be able to hug them again, to never be able to talk to them again. I mean, what a terrible thing it would be to lose a loved one. And so I'm sure that's high up on the list for many of us. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's loneliness and never getting married. Maybe it's never being able to have kids. Maybe it's losing our job and not being able to provide for our family. Maybe it's getting dementia and drifting away. There's all sorts of things that we might fear. See, we live in an age of anxiousness, anxiety and fear. It sometimes feels like fear is our roommate that's constantly there with us, always by our shoulder, never leaving us alone. And so I wonder, what is it that you fear? For David, the author of our psalm, his fear was a literal army. Now, the title of the psalm, I don't know if you noticed it there, it's the first psalm in the, in the Bible that has a title, and it gives us a little bit of a clue as to the situation that's going on. Have a look at the title of the psalm. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Uh, now, this is describing the events of 2 Samuel 15 to 18. David was king, yet his son Absalom wanted to become king. And so Absalom uh, plotted and schemed and he raised up, he, he won over all of the Israelites. They wanted him as king. But of course, they had a problem. Uh, how can you have a new king when you still have the old king, when the old king's still alive? And of course, the, the question is, you can't. And so they decided to kill David. When David heard about this, he obviously wasn't particularly enamored with, by the sound of that, so he fled for his life. And as he does, he then cries out in verse 1. Have a look at verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? See, it's almost like there's this tidal wave uh, that's risen up, and it's now about to crash down on David. That's the whole Israelite army, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people against him and his bodyguards. They outnumbered 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 50 to 1. And it's not particularly difficult to imagine why this would be a situation that might make you fearful. Imagine being woken up in the middle of the night by an angry mob wanting to kill you. And that angry mob is led by none other than your own son, Imagine having to drop everything and flee out into the desert in the middle of the night with only the clothes on your back. Imagine lying awake at night, every sound you hear, fearing that's the army coming to kill you. I mean, this would be a horrendous thing. It's easy to understand why he's so fearful. And in fact, this situation seems so helpless that they say not even God can save him. Have a look at verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, if anyone can save you, it's God. We know that the stronger someone is, the better able to save you they are. If I was in, trapped in a burning house, I would not want a toddler to try and save me. They're not strong enough. They're not able to save me. What I want is a firefighter, someone who's strong enough to kick down the door, to lift burning logs and throw them out the way. See, the stronger someone is, the better equipped they are to save you. And the strongest of all is God. And yet things seem so hopeless here for David that they say not even God can save him. It's hopeless. It's beyond 
hopeless. And so that's the situation that David finds himself in, powerless, outnumbered, surrounded by enemies. See, if anyone has a reason to be scared, it's David. And as we see see David here, fear for his life, we're meant to wonder, well, how is David going to respond? What's he going to do in the face of fear? And what we see across the rest of Psalm 3 then is how David handles fear. But it also shows us how we can handle fear. What we're to do when those fears of ours creep up behind us and whisper in our ears. When we feel like David, powerless, hopeless, forlorn. And so then, what are we to do in the face of fear? Well, the rest of the psalm tells us four things. It tells us where to look to God, where to call to God, where to trust in God, because there's deliverance in God. That's what we're to do in the face of fear. And so the first thing we're to do when fear comes creeping up is we're to look to God. That's what David does. All around him, his enemies are circling like vultures, waiting to devour him. And so he looks to God and he realizes that God is his shield and protection. Have a look at verse 3. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. Now, we all know what a shield is. It's that uh, thing that goes on your arm and, and protects you in battle. But did you notice how it describes the shield? He doesn't say, you are a shield for me. He doesn't say, you are a shield to me. He says, you are a shield around me. Because the thing about shields is they go on your arm and as an enemy comes and tries to attack you, you block with one arm, then you fight back with the other arm, then you block with one arm, fight with the other arm. That's, that's how shields work. But a shield like that is in no sense around you. It's simply on your arm and you're using it to block. But they can get you from other angles. But the thing is that somehow God is a shield around David. He doesn't just protect David from attacks from the front, but also from the side and from the top and from the back. And so in the midst of his fear, David looks to God and realizes that God is his shield, the one who'll protect him from dangers and from harm. And as he continues to then look at God, he says that God is all he needs, that God is his glory. Have a look again at verse 3. God, you are my glory, the one who lifts my head high. Now, we don't use the word glory that much in, in modern English, but it just simply means weight. In other words, it's, it's what we value or what we put our weight, what we put our emphasis on. And the language of lift, lifting someone's head is, is quite similar. It refers to putting someone in a position of honor. And so, in other words, David is saying, God, you're the one I delight and trust in. You're what my heart delights in. And we all have things like that. I'm sure, I'm sure you can think of things that you delight in. Uh, this is my nana. Sadly, she's passed away, but uh, she was 98, I think, at the time there. And the thing about my nana was she loved gardening. Now, I don't know how she felt having me as a grandson. I'm the biggest brown thumb there is, but she loved gardening. And any time we went over, she'd always tell us about her garden. In fact, when she moved into an aged care facility, even there, she made sure that she was the one in charge of their garden. 
She was one that organised what plants they had. She was the one that organised how they were arranged. She was the one that organised when they were watered. She was the one that organised what plant food was given to them. She was the one that if a plant was dying, they would take it to her and she'd be able to save it. And so whenever we went over, all she did was, was talk about these plants and her face would glow as she did. And most of it was lost on me. I had no idea what she was talking about. But still, it was good to see her, the delight she had in that gardening. So enthusiastic. I'm sure we can all think of things like that for us, things we delight in. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your garden. Whatever it is, we all have things that we take pride in that we find our glory in. And David sang for him, that's God. Which is quite an amazing thing to say, because if anyone had things to take glory in, things to take pride in, things to take delight in, it was David. He was a powerful king. He was feared among the nations. He was wealthy beyond imagining. He had many beautiful wives and loving children. He had horses and chariots and soldiers and castles. David had it all. And so he could have put his pride in that. But the thing is, what, what happened to it all? Well, it was ripped away. He was a powerful king, yet now he's an exile on the run. He was wealthy beyond imagining, yet now he's sleeping in the dirt. He did have many loving children, yet one of his own sons is leading a mob to try and kill him. And what this shows us is a vital truth about the world. See, even though all of those things are good things, they're not something that can bear our glory. They're not something that can bear our weight. Why? Well, because they're not permanent things. They're temporary. Easy come, easy go. And it's a helpful reminder for us as well. It's a good thing to have something you're skilled at. It's a good thing to have a spouse that you love. It's a good thing to have children that you're taking care of. All of those are good things. But they're not things we can put our glory in. Because they're, they're temporary. They're finite. And if we try and put our glory in them, put our weight in them, then they will let us down eventually. But see, the thing about fear is that it reveals to us where our glory lies. It shows us where our hearts are at, what we love. Because fear comes when those things are threatened. I heard an incredible stat the other day. More than 25%, one in four, of retired professional athletes, sportsmen, sportswomen, struggle with anxiety or mental health issues or depression once they retire. They struggle with their identity. And why is that? Well, because for their whole life, they've been known as that person who's good at sport. That's what they've done. That's what everyone's paid attention to them for. That's where their glory lies. But as soon as it's gone, what happens? Well, they don't know how to live. They're overcome with anxiety and fear. See, that's what happens with fear. And the reality is that if our glory lies in anything or anyone other than God, then it will let us down at some stage. And that's why the key to fighting fear, the first step in fighting fear is to look to God. To look to God and find our glory in God 
our infinite King rather than in finite things. And so that's the first step. But we don't just look to God, we also call out to God because that's what David does. He calls out to God and God answers. Have a look at verse 4. I called out to the Lord and He answered me from His holy mountain. Now, this holy mountain or this holy hill is the same as we saw last week in Psalm 2. It's the same Hebrew words, ha-kadash. Ha means uh, hill or or mountain. Kadash means holy. And so, it's essentially saying this same location as what we saw in Psalm 2. And that is Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which means that uh, this is God's home. And from His home, God hears David call. And he answers him. He doesn't leave David in the lurch. He doesn't leave David by himself. He answers. And I wonder, have you ever felt so overcome with fear and anguish that you not only felt overwhelmed with sorrow, but also completely and utterly sold despairingly alone? As if no one on earth could possibly understand the depth of your fear and pain. And what a blessing it is when we feel like that, in times like that, to know that God is there and God hears when we call. What a blessing it is in times like that, to know that God is ready to shoulder your burdens and your sufferings and your distress. See, not only does God understand and see you in the center of your pain and fear, but He's also available to you, listening to you, He's ready as you cry out your heartache and your fear. See, when we call to God, God hears. So that's the second thing we're to do. And once we've done that, once we've looked to God, and once we've called to God, then we're to trust in God. That's the third thing that David does. He knows that things are in God's hands now. And so he leaves them there. He trusts that God will take care of it. And did you notice what that then enables him to do? Well, even though he's been hunted and hounded by an army, by enemies, he's able to lie down and sleep. Have a look at verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Now, we all know that when you're sleeping, you're at your most vulnerable. When you're sleeping, you're defenseless. You've got, you've got no protection against people that come at you. And none of us would go to sleep if we knew there was an axe murderer waiting outside the door, waiting to come in and kill us once we're asleep. Of course you don't. But for David, there's not just an axe murderer waiting outside. There's a whole army coming, ready to kill him. And so what would you have done if you were David? Well, if it was me, I'd have sat up all night with my sword and my shield there, waiting to jump up and defend myself, waiting to fight off enemies that came in. And yet, what does David do? He lies down and he sleeps. In fact, he says even more than that. He says, even though there are tens of thousands of soldiers chasing him, still he won't fear. Have a look at verse 6. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. See, David doesn't lie awake fretting. He doesn't lie awake planning. He doesn't lie awake tossing and turning over the approaching army. Instead, he trusts God and he leaves it with God, even in the face of the whole 
Israelite army. And this is the key to handling fear, to trusting God and to leaving it with God, to trust God and to leave it with God. See, I think what often happens when we're in the midst of fear is we know that we should take our fears and our anxieties to God. We know that we're meant to look to God and call out to God, so we do that. We take it to God in prayer. We pray about it. But the problem is we don't then leave it with God. We don't then trust God with our fears. Instead, we pray about it. Then we go straight back to being fearful about it as soon as we're done. But that's not trusting in God. Trusting in God means leaving it with God. It's a little bit like fishing. I don't know if you're into fishing. When you go fishing, what do you do? Well, you get your fishing rod and you attach the hook then you put the bait on and then you cast it out into the water. And when it lands, what do you do? Well, you don't wheel it straight back in. I mean, that'd be ridiculous. If you did that, you're never going to catch a fish. No, what you do is you cast it out and you leave it out there. And in a sense, that's what we're to do with our fears. We're to cast it before God and then leave it with God. We don't wheel it straight back in. See, fear doesn't trust easily. It wants to be the boss. It wants to be heard. But what David shows us is the key to fighting, to handling fear, is to trust God enough to leave it with God. But let me ask you this. Is David just naive? Are we just naive to trust God? See, how can we lie down to sleep when there's so many different legitimate fears around? How can we carry on with life when there's so many things to fear? Well, it's because of what we see in the end of our psalm in verses 7 and 8. We've seen how David handles fear. He looks to God, he calls to God, and then he trusts in God. But why is he able to do all of that? Well, because he knows that there's deliverance in God. Because as the psalm ends, David calls to God to deliver him, to fight off his enemies. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. I mean, it's such vivid language, isn't it? It's striking the jaw and breaking the teeth. In a sense, David thinks, well, Absalom, you might have a powerful army, but I have a more powerful God. That's a little bit like the illustration from last week with our, our poor garden gnome. In a sense, there's this powerful army, and yet all they are to God is a garden gnome ready to be pulverized. And God will pulverize them. He'll shatter their teeth and break their jaws. And we actually know that that's what happened in history uh, we know what happened to David's enemies, and we know it from 2 Samuel 18. Uh, it's quite a funny story. Do have a read of it. It's quite enjoyable. But when Absalom hears David's armies coming along, he tries to flee. Uh, but as he does, he's riding on a mule, and it, dry, it rides under a big tree, and Absalom's hair gets caught in the branch of the tree, and he gets stuck, and his stupid mule just keeps going on and leaves him hanging there by his hair. And David's soldiers find him and kill him. And of course, the moral of the story is that baldness can save lives, but it's also that God delivers his David from his enemies. But the thing is that David didn't know that would happen 
when he's writing this psalm. He didn't know that that is what God would do. And so you can just imagine David's soul is in turmoil and he writes this psalm, not knowing the future, but trusting God and knowing that God can deliver. And indeed, God did deliver. And in the same way, we can be absolutely certain that God sees all of our fear and pain, that He knows our hearts, and that He's listening when we cry for relief. And we can rest secure that He will deliver us in His own good timing, according to His own good plans. Now, for some of us, that might mean that we are physically delivered from whatever it is that's causing us fear. But the promise of deliverance that we have is actually even greater than that. It's a promise of deliverance from our greatest foe, sin. Uh, flip with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10. That's the passage we had for our first Bible reading. Flip over to Matthew 10. And this is what Jesus says here. He's talking to his disciples about uh, persecution and who they really should fear. And then in verse 28, he says this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, Jesus tells us that the one we really should fear is God. Because God's the one who can destroy both our body, but also our soul in hell. And why does God do that? Well, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of Him as King. But the incredible thing about what we see here, and the incredible thing about God, is that God delivers us from the grasp of sin, and therefore from hell and judgment. And He does it through the precious blood of His own Son, given for us that we might live. See, that's what God has done for us, to strike the jaw and break the teeth of sin and the devil. God has given us His own Son, who died in our place, the death we deserved, and who then rose again, triumphant over death, that we might live. See, ultimately, that is why we do not need to fear, because the greatest enemy there is, sin, has been dealt with. And that's why there's deliverance from God, deliverance in God. And that's why, as God's people, we're, not pe we're people not of fear, but of confidence. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in the Bible, the phrase, do not fear or do not be afraid, is one of the most common phrases there. In fact, do you know how many times it's mentioned in the Bible? 365. 365 times the phrase, do not be afraid or do not be fearful, that kind of language, appears, one for each day of the year. But as Christians, it reminds us that we are not people of fear. We are people of great confidence because we have a great deliverer. Now, this week, actually, I heard the story of a Christian man I know. He's not particularly old. He's in his late 50s, early 60s. And he went along for some unrelated medical tests. And in the process of that, they discovered that he's got advanced metastatic bowel cancer, which uh, basically means that it's late-stage cancer that's spread to other parts of his body. And imagine being him and sitting there, hearing that from the doctor. 
Uh, he didn't know it was coming. He wasn't feeling particularly unwell. The tests were about something else. Wasn't expecting it at all. And so imagine sitting there and imagine the fear that could come. Fear the thought of a life cut short. In fact, only around a 20% five-year survival rate. Fear the thought of family left behind. He's got a wife and three daughters as well as a 91-year-old dad. It would be quite expected that in a situation like that, you'd feel fear. But you know what he said about his cancer diagnosis? This is what he said. I have no fear whatsoever for the future, but complete trust in a loving God who gave his son that those who know him might have life. I feel sadness for my family and my 91-year-old dad, but I have no sense that this is anything other, anything but God's perfect plan. I found that so encouraging in the face of cancer and impending death. We might expect that he'd be consumed by fear, but he's not. He says he has no fear whatsoever for the future. And how can he say that? Well, because he knows of the great deliverance given by our great God through his Son. And so some of us might be facing a similar situation at the moment, fear of cancer and of death. But even for those of us who are not facing those same fears, who have different fears, even though our fears might be different, our confidence is the same, that God is good and that God has delivered us from the greatest enemy there is, an enemy even greater than cancer and death, sin and judgment. And so we need not fear. As Christians, we are not people of fear, but people of great confidence because we have a great God. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Psalm 3. We thank you for the the way it equips us to handle fear. And we ask that when we are uh, overcome by fear, when we're assailed by fear, you would help us to look to you and locate our glory in you. We ask that you would help us to call to you, knowing that you answer. We ask that you would help us to trust in you, knowing that you can take care of things. And ultimately, we we ask that you'd help us to know all of that because of the deliverance found in you through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And so we do thank you for Psalm 3, and we ask that uh, when we have, have fear and when fear comes, you would help us remember it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.